All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Living Truth. We're glad you're here. We are in Exodus, but we're going to start off today in Romans. So would you turn over to Romans chapter 8? I'm going to give you a couple introductory verses instead of reading the passage this morning. Romans 8, and then we'll move to Galatians 4. The shaping of a leader. God is in the business of saving and shaping. And once you get saved, that's just the beginning of the journey. There is the idea of regeneration, the theological principle that you're born again in a moment. The moment that you turn and trust in Christ, you are born again from above. You are regenerated, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But now there's a work that God wants to do, and that is a shaping work. And he has a particular plan for each of us, good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here's a little bit more about that. This is Romans 8. Let's just look at verse 28 and 29. We know, not that we have to guess, not that we have to wonder, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, Romans 8, 28. To those who love God, there's the qualification. Do you love him? Are you in a relationship with him? To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, God is doing a conforming work, and later in Romans, he will say, don't be conformed to the world, rather be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, if you flip over to Galatians, which is just a little bit more to your right, Paul talks to the Galatian church, chapter 4, about this process as well. And the Galatian church was uh, facing all kinds of uh, heresy and uh, strange teachings. And Paul says this at the tail end of the letter. He says, My children, Galatians 4.19, with whom I am again in labor, that implies a struggle, until, what's your Bible say? Christ is formed in you. Now, we're going to talk about the shaping of Moses as a leader, and we're going to be talking about leadership today. And every one of you is a leader in some sphere, so this applies to everyone. But Moses is a type, a picture of the deliverer. So certainly God was doing shaping in his life, but I think it would be easy to maybe for some of you to sit on the sidelines, kind of be up in the stands today and say, oh, that's Moses, or maybe that's a pastor or a missionary. But actually, Paul writes to the whole church in Rome and the Galatian churches and says, no, this is for everybody in the body. Jesus Christ is being formed in you. This is the process of sanctification. And this is what God does. He uses all the various things that we go through, especially, of course, his work in our own lives, to conform us or to form us into the image of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, if you go to the book of Exodus chapter 2, that we're going to be a deliverer for somebody, but in another sense, we can be. That is, we lead people to the gospel. We lead people to the Christ who is the deliverer. But we give a delivering message, do we not? We have the gospel. It's been entrusted to the church, the pillar and support of the truth. And so we give it away. And when we give it away, people can meet the deliverer until Christ is formed in you. And it does imply a struggle. We know that you know, for Christ to really be formed in us, it is a process. It's a conforming, shaping process, often pictured in the potter with the 
uh, pottery, the shaping of the wheel. It can be painful. It can be difficult. But the Lord is doing a work. And we're going to see this in the life of Moses. And I want you to be thinking about your own journey, your own life, whatever you may be facing this morning. God works all things together for good. And it moves into that idea of him conforming us into the image of his son. Father, thank you for the precious people that have gathered uh, to this place on this morning. And this is the church because they are here. It's not the building. And thank you for all of those who have joined us in their homes. And they can't be here right now, but nevertheless, they are here. And I know they're with us in spirit. And we're so grateful that we can be together on this Lord's Day. Thank you for the rain. The rain is an image in the Bible about it coming down and causing growth on the ground. And we need it desperately in Southern California, but we need it more desperately in our lives, Lord. Let the rain of your word produce a crop unto your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. We're going to finish chapter 2 this morning in the book of Exodus, and we are looking at the shaping of a leader. Let's start in verse 11, Exodus 2. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, literally you could render this reached manhood, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. Now, as we often see in the Bible, we just have uh, kind of big moments in a lot of the stories of our heroes in Scripture. This is also true of Moses. You have a focus on the birth of Moses and the first couple of months of his life until his mother and father could not hide him any longer. And then mom did that tender, wonderful thing that she did. She made that little ark for him and put him in the reeds on the Nile. And God, of course, did the rest. And he did a miraculous thing. And mom, Yoshebed, was able to uh, nurse Moses and take care of him at least the first three, four years of his life until he was weaned. And back in the ancient times, that took place at about three or four years of age. So they had a chance to pour into him in very formative years to uh, love him, to cherish him. I'm sure, I'm sure they were trying to do a whole lot in a very condensed period of time. And uh, they had to hand him off to the Pharaoh's daughter, to the princess. And Moses became her son. And so this is about 36 years later. So oftentimes when you're reading your Bible, all of a sudden there's a fast forward and it moves from the time of a birth to the time of adulthood and there's not a lot of story in between. And some of you are tracking with this because you know this is what happened with Jesus. There are birth narratives in Matthew and Luke in the Gospels, but Mark and John really start when Jesus is an adult. And we only have one snapshot of Jesus' childhood Nothing about his teen years. One snapshot when he was 12, and that's in the Gospel of Luke. And that's all we got, because the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you will, starts when he was about 30 years of age. And Moses is about 40 when, his, uh, when this transition occurs. And Moses is going to live another 80 years. So he's going to have a long life. And God's going to use those 40-year stretches for different periods or different purposes in Moses' life. And so you can just note that if you are taking notes, that Moses has now moved to adulthood from really a time when he was a child till he has grown up. When a child has reached such a stage, says one writer, he's able to choose, and this is specifically a male, his way of life and interests, take part in his father's business, marry, 
and theoretically give sound advice and, uh, and to others based upon mature understanding and wisdom. I have had the privilege to raise three boys, and one of the things that uh, I went through in terms of looking at how to raise them was a program called Raising a Modern Day Night. And one of the things that Robert Lewis did in that curriculum was to instruct fathers to honor rites of passage and to do different ceremonies at different significant ages when they were transitioning into adolescence and then to adulthood and honor that with ceremonies and speak into their lives and and charge them with a biblical worldview and calling. And that's something I had the privilege to do with my own sons. And one thing that I did was I gave them swords because it was the, this idea of raising a modern-day knight. And the swords were really symbolic, unless they really got mad at their brother. Then I said you could use it. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I would put their favorite Bible verse on the sword and present it to them in a way that was not just the norm, like here's a sword. It was more of a ceremony. And we did one as a church of men, a group of men as part of this fellowship around a fire up in the mountains one time. And it was a very special, I would even call it a holy moment, where dads were telling their sons how much they loved them and what they desired that they would accomplish for the kingdom of God. And I think we need to get back to some of that in our culture. I think we've maybe overlooked some of that. And that's true for, uh, obviously, boys and girls as they grow up. But, But Moses is a male, and the idea here is he reached manhood. Um, so what does it mean when you reach manhood? What should be uh, said to a child who is growing up and transitioning? What would we do as dads or grandpas or great-grandpas to charge them with something that they could really, really be thinking about? And I'll just tell you simply, one of the things that I tried to do is tell my boys that they were to live for a transcendent cause, that is the cause of the gospel, They were to meet their Lord, walk with their Lord, realize their gifts, and use them for something that's actually going to last, something that really matters, not just the temporal stuff of the world. But they would also realize maybe their uh, specific work that they would do, because not everybody ends up in formal ministry. So what is it that God's calling you to do for work? And that you would understand that and realize that and walk in it. And for those outside Uh, of the gift of singleness, you would find a woman to marry. And I started praying along with mom for future wives when they were little kids. And I started challenging my boys about how to love a woman correctly and how to honor her and how to deal with her family. Those are things that I really felt needed to be uh, put into their hearts. To go and ask the dad, "Can can I buy your daughter a frozen yogurt? Is that okay? And I would encourage the dads to be cleaning your gun at that point. That would be really strategic. (laughs) You see, the shaping of a leader happens by God, but it also is entrusted to us. And the shaping of God's people is entrusted to shepherds who shepherd the flock of God and commend people to the grace of God and Utilize the Word of God because the Word of God does its shaping in our lives. Amen? That's why we do what we do here, by the way. We believe in the power of God's Word to shape you. And sometimes, you know, I know you're sitting there and I say all God's people said amen and you're like, oh, no, all God's people said ouch. 
I feel you. I usually get it during the week, and then I don't want to do it all alone. I want to share the conforming struggle. Now, Moses was trained in Egyptian education, which God would use. Let me just remind you, I've mentioned this a few times, but about the first 40 years of his life, saved the three or four years of weaning, Moses was raised in the greatest educational system that existed on the planet. The Egyptian uh, understanding of astronomy, mathematics, building projects, architecture, art, uh, is born out in history. The riches and wealth of Egypt uh, discovered in uh, such things as the tomb of King Tut and the incredible uh, fortitude of these people, creativity, and how smart they were in terms of constructing the pyramids and the colors they use in their paintings and stuff is amazing. And, and Moses got that. And Moses spoke at least probably three languages by the time he was done with his schooling. And he was educated, very well educated, and God would use that strategically because Moses pens the first five books of our Bibles called the Pentateuch. And so God even used that, if you want to put it this way, secular education to prepare Moses to do what God called him to do. Let me remind you, and you don't have to turn there, Acts 7, 22 and 23. And there's two commentaries in the New Testament that uh, talk about Moses' early upbringing and education, Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. But for the sake of time, it says Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, Acts 7, 22, 23. He was a man of power in words and deeds. This is Stephen speaking. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now Moses goes out to them. If you look one more time in verse 11, it says he went out, middle of 11, to his brethren. That phrase went out is yatsa in Hebrew. It's the same word of them going out in the exodus out of Egypt. He went out to his brethren. Moses knows who he is. He knows he's Hebrew, even though he's grown up in an Egyptian context. And he looked on their hard labors. That phrase, he looked on and he saw, uh, is more than just a passing glance. Moses looked, uh, one writer put it this way, Moses left the palace and brought his heart out to the mud pits. And when he looked, he saw his people's pain. Now, I don't know because of where Moses was educated and where the slaves were taken to build these cities for Pharaoh, if he was somewhat isolated from their pain, uh, we would have to surmise that in 40 years of life, he had to have seen some you know, glimpses of it at least. Was he isolated from the locations where the terrible stuff was happening? Did he hear the stories? Did he see it a couple of times? Were they more behaved when he was there? I don't know. But what I do know is that when Moses went out this time, he went out to his people, it was in his heart, in his soul to do so. He looked upon them and the idea of the Hebrew here is he looked upon them and felt their emotion and felt their pain. A couple times recently, I, I was sharing with some uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that when we go to our great high priest, he can empathize and sympathize with our pain because he's the God-man. And still today, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He knows what it's like to be betrayed to uh, be an innocent victim, unjustly treated. We can go down the list. He knew what it was like to be tired, to face temptation, etc., etc. He knows 
because he's human. He's 100% human. So when you go to that throne of grace, Hebrews 4, he can empathize and sympathize. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and that he pours out help to us in time of need. That is a beautiful image that I'm not sure we always put together, that when we go to the God-man, he has empathy for us. And Moses looked on his people and he felt their pain. Some years ago, we had a band here and the lead singer was named Moy and that's what the name of the band. And Moy shared a story. He said he went out to a third world country. I don't remember the name of the country. And uh, he saw the poverty and, and he felt compassion for what was going on. And he met two young boys. And as a punishment, their mom had poured chlorine into their eyes directly, and they both were blind. And he said he had a moment where he was looking at their blindness and what their mother had done to them and looking at the poverty and, and the living conditions, and he was like, oh, God, you know. Uh, he, he felt the pain, and, you know, there's nothing like seeing something for yourself to understand what's really going on. When you really see something for what it is, and sometimes our eyes are shielded from reality, and, and some of the atrocities of our day, we get shielded from the reality that once you see it, there's no more arguments about what it is. And this could be in the realm of abortion. This could be in the realm of a lot of different things that go on in our world that are you know, oftentimes shielded from the public. We don't really know what this means until we see it. And Moses had one of those experiences. And Moy said he felt like God when he saw those boys and considered the, the area, God spoke to his heart, and you can take this for what, it's, what it is. He said, the Lord said, you know, you're just feeling this pain right now. Do you know how long I've been watching this? I've always known what they're going through. But now you're beginning to resonate with something that I think this is what we do as believers. We have compassion for people. We want to enter into people's pain and be Christ's hands and feet. Amen? This is what we talk about in the church. This is where we take you know, what we learn and we actually put it into practice in the world. And so Moses went out. He took his heart. He saw the pain. And it was probably tough for him to see because these, this was his people. You know, he, he had been obviously largely shaped in the Egyptian setting, but still he felt compassion. He went out to his brethren. He looked. He saw. End of 11. An Egyptian beating the idea of beating is nakah in Hebrew or nakao, and it can mean to smite or it could even mean to kill. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, one of his brothers. There's Moses. He has sympathy, empathy. He looks, he feels the emotion, and then he sees a travesty where the Hebrew could imply that if this goes on, this Egyptian, perhaps taskmaster, is going to kill this Hebrew. What do you do now? What would you do if you were Moses? You're an Egyptian prince. This is what the Pharaoh has ordered. Hard, rigorous labor among the Hebrews to keep them down and build our cities. And there you are, but you're Hebrew. And now you watch the reality of what's been happening for years, but now you see it. Now you're exposed to it. Now what are you going to do? Now there's those TV shows, what would you do, right? If you were put in this position. And some people behave, you know, great sometimes when the cameras are hidden and some people don't, don't do so hot. 
And that's where, really where the rubber meets the road as a Christian. According to Brevard Childs, one writer says, this phrase, he goes out, and then Hebrews eleven twenty six says, he does it for the disgrace of Christ or for uh, the sake of Christ. He suffers disgrace for the sake of Christ. That's Hebrews eleven twenty six NIV. The idea, it indicates an actual participation by Moses in Christ's shame in the same way as the saints who follow Christ later also share Philippians 3.10 in the fellowship of his sufferings. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused the wealth, the privilege, and all of that. He refused. He made a conscious decision. I will not be called her son. I will go out to my people and I will suffer disgrace for the sake of of Christ. I will share in his sufferings. And obviously Christ was to be born later after the time of Moses. But there was an affinity because Jesus Christ is eternal God. And Moses was finding an affinity with his heart for his people. This is why Jesus left heaven. This is why he became human. Because he saw our pain. He knew our taskmasters, if you will. He knew what it was doing to us to be in the world and be under Satan's grip, if you will. And he came on a rescue mission and left the glories of heaven. Now, there's not a direct parallel, obviously, because Moses is a fallen human and Jesus is uh, God, second person of the Holy Trinity. But still, I think you can see the connection. Moses had to count the cost, and so do we. We have to count the cost. Do I really want to live for the Lord? Do I really want to be a believer who lives out my faith? He gave up position, pleasure, and prosperity, and by doing so, rejected three of the world's biggest temptations. Listen, they are narcissism, hedonism, and materialism. And they are hard to fight because they appeal to us. If I can have people wait on me, if I can make life all about me, if I can have gobs of material wealth, no matter what's happening to somebody down the street, doesn't really matter because I got my stuff and I got my kingdom. That's what the world really deems is, is important. And even philanthropy that comes oftentimes is done for selfish purposes to put my name on some foundation or something like that. But that's not Christ's heart. And so Moses looks he sees this terrible situation going on. He had a moment of decision. He looked, verse 12, this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, around is added by the translators, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses killed him. He looked around and he killed him. Now, there are volumes written uh, on whether or not what Moses did was correct and how to best understand the passage. And let me just tell you that ancient commentators all the way out throughout church history, many of them try to defend Moses. They say Moses is kind of doing the eye for the eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing, and he intervenes, and maybe even Moses' action typifies what God is about to do because God is going to strike down the gods of the Egyptians, strike down the firstborn of Egypt, and Moses is the deliverer, so maybe this is an early indication of what God will do in the Exodus. And that's certainly possible, and many commentators go that way. There are others that you could read, 
And they would say, no, Moses did the wrong thing because murder is never right. But if you read, you know, some treatments on this idea of the sixth commandment and what it actually means, thou shalt not kill, there are certainly times when killing would be appropriate. For example, capital punishment, defending your wife or your home against an attacker. And there's even volumes written on something called just war theory. And just war theory means that there are some wars that are justified because they stem the tide of evil. If a nation rises up and is killing other innocent people, it would be right for another nation to step up and defend them. And this even spills over to civil government, police officers, and the like. Of course, all things being equal when it's done for the right purposes, right reasons, etc. So these are the struggles that you deal with when you look at a text like this. And these are some of the ideas that come out that we have to wrestle with as believers and understand what we believe and why we believe it. I had a conversation with a young man about capital punishment, and he said he struggled with it because if we get it wrong, we've ended a life unjustly. And I said, I totally understand, but I will also say to you that we shouldn't argue from an exception. We shouldn't argue that, well, we don't do capital punishment because we could get it wrong. You always argue from the norm. You argue from what's right and true, not from the exception. Even though I know we'd want to be careful, and I will say, even in today's world, how careful are people until someone actually has to face you know, a death penalty. It's, it's a pretty long process. I'm not trying to make light of any of this. I'm just telling you what the ideas are and the struggles in terms of looking at you know, how we live our lives. There are others who see verse 12, and I, I'll put this before you for consideration, that when he looked around, his looking around was that there was nobody to help. In other words, Moses' looking around might be something like this. He looked around to see if anybody else would intervene. If anybody else would do anything. A story came out of New York this some years ago of a person who was stabbed in front of a, uh, like a little convenience liquor store in, on the streets of New York. And the person was laying there bleeding and for many minutes... People stepped over the person and went into the store and shopped. And some people were even taking cell phone video of him on the ground. But nobody was intervening. <laughs> and this is the verse that we could make the connection. It's Isaiah 59, 16. God saw that there was no one. And he was appalled that there was no one to intervene, no intercessor. So his own arm worked salvation for him, Isaiah 59, 16. His own righteousness sustained him. Moses is going to be a mediator, and he looks around to see if anybody will mediate. And God points back to him, if you will, and this is often what we do. Is there anybody out there to help? Because I'm kind of busy. Can, can we call, call one of those professional ministers to help out? And I'm saying there are, there are times when we should do that, but then there are other times when you've got the goods to do it. You're sharing the gospel with a friend. You can share the gospel with them. Amen? You can intervene. You can be a type of mediator. The church is to be equipped for works of service. Amen? Engaged in the ministry, uh, reaching out to a broken world. Now, whether you believe that Moses looked around for an intercessor, someone else to help, or he looked around to make sure the coast was clear, this is a couple of major views. 
it seems like the language would lend itself to he looked around to see if anybody else was watching because then he does bury the guy. He kills him and buries him. But I would submit to you that, you know, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of both here. I don't know. And so Moses intervenes and he helps. Now, let me take you quickly to Acts 7. And this is the commentary by Stephen. And I think it's valuable to see it because, you know, we can comment on passages, but when the New Testament comments on an Old Testament passage, that's the first go-to, right? We have brilliant minds in the church, in the history of the church, but I want to see what, what, what do other authors or other speakers inspired by the Spirit say about what happened. This is Acts 7, 24. Stephen says, when he saw one of them, Egyptians, Acts 7, 24, beating, being treated unjustly, I'm sorry, he saw one of his brethren being treated unjustly. He defended him, Acts 7, 24, and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian, Acts 7, 25. And he supposed, did Moses, that his brethren, Hebrews, understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Would you notice that at this point, Moses already knows that he's the deliverer. Now, if we watch Cecil B. DeMille's movie, we get the idea that Moses doesn't even know until the burning bush. And I I would say that's where it's all solidified. But Moses already knows, according to Stephen's sermon, he already knows that he has a delivering call on his life. And how that was all manifested, I don't know for sure. But Stephen says, Moses thought the people would understand. Jesus came to his own, and his own would not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. John 1, 11 and 12. And so Stephen goes on. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. We'll see this in a moment. He tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? If you're interested, write down Luke 19, 14, where Jesus tells a parable and indicates that this is what Israel was saying about him. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Luke 19, 14. You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. That'll be for our family Sunday next time we're together. But there's some of the commentary back to Exodus chapter 2. And here's Moses. Did he jump the gun? Did he get ahead of God? Did he do the right thing, the wrong thing? <laughs> you know, we can conjecture all of this. I'll let you wrestle with some of this, but here is Moses, and he has killed this Egyptian. He has made really a totally life-transforming decision because all the implications he's got to know. It is a capital crime to strike an Egyptian and kill them. But Moses is the prince, and so Is he within his rights? These are some of the concepts wrestled with. So he's done this now. Verse 13, Exodus 2. uh, Next scene, if you will. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting. Now, two brethren. Not an Egyptian and a Hebrew, but two uh, family members, if you will, in servitude, probably frustrated, probably tired. That happens sometimes. But they were fighting. And this is a physical fight with each other. 
And he, Moses, said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Why are you beating each other up? Why do this? And I'm going to mention something that is reality in our world, that there is abuse that happens to people sometimes within the setting of a marriage or a family. And oftentimes it is buried and not spoken about. And people get caught in a cycle of abuse. And this just jumped off the page. And I'll, I'll just put it before you for if, if it's for somebody hearing this or who will watch this later. Here's a question. Why are you striking your companion? Why are you doing that? There is no excuse for that. Whether you are a male or a female, whether you decide that your anger must be manifested in throwing something at your spouse or even striking them or pushing them or threatening them with your voice, it is not okay. It's not okay. Why do you do that, says Moses, the deliverer? But the response is, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? That Moses, then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Now, Moses thought that his people would understand, but they saw him as perhaps a Johnny-come-lately leader. Or maybe, because I'm sure people knew the story of Moses, maybe they said something like this, where have you been for decades as we're getting beat out here? You're up in the palace getting your education. They're feeding you grapes and fanning you. Now you finally care? Maybe some of that. I don't know. But there's disdain, and, and somehow they know what Moses has done. They have witnessed it. And so Moses, once again, typifies Jesus Christ. Coming to intervene, give us hope and life, and many reject Jesus. Many of his own people, when he came, of course, would not receive him. The leadership of Israel, largely, although there were some who believed, some Pharisees who believed largely rejected him. And they said, who are you? And by what authority do you do these things? Who made you prince and judge? Uh, God. <laughs> because I am God. But boy, they had issues. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, the Pharaoh tried to kill Moses Exodus 2.15, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the, this is a big transition in the life of Moses. First 40 years in Egypt, he kills the Egyptian. He confronts uh, uh, an argument or a fight. He's exposed. The Pharaoh wants, puts a death sentence on his head, and off to Midian he goes. And I'll just say, there's some different uh, views on where, what Midian represents, but the Midianites were descendants of Abraham through a wife named Keturah, Genesis 25. And this land is somewhere in the Arabian Sinai Peninsula uh, near the Gulf of Aqaba. And I'll just say to you that this is the desert. This is, if you want to think Sinai, you've got the picture now. Moses is going out to this people of Midian, this land of Midian. He's now gone out to the wilderness. Moses has his own exodus from Egypt, and now he's going to have 40 years where? In the wilderness. For what? To prepare him to lead the people out. 
He will experience his own individual exodus, his own 40 years in the wilderness, all in preparation and shaping him as a leader. And sometimes, you know, we're doing life and we're like, Lord, this is a wilderness, the 91 freeway. <laughs> what am I doing here? Stuck among cars. Oh, that you would give my car wings. Oh, that you would get me out of the desert, you know. Why do you have me here for years in this situation? Preparation. <laughs> Everything can be preparatory in your life, right? You learn faithfulness. You learn, you know, that God, and, and this is something that you've probably heard before, but God does his shaping of many great Bible characters in the wilderness. Even Jesus Spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, retracing the fallen footsteps of Israel as the Messiah. And sometimes we're in the wilderness, and that's where God gets our attention without all the noise, without all the devices. The last year of our lives certainly has been a wilderness. <laughs> you remember the early days? No sports, no this, no that. You're like, what am I going to do now? Some of you discovered that you waste a lot of time on things that have no value. I don't do that. You guys do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, let me, let me qualify this. I believe that there should be times when you get to kick back, watch a movie, enjoy recreation. Don't get me wrong here because we, we get weird and legalistic sometimes. You should, should enjoy that stuff. But if you find that the value that you put in front of your eyes and face is constantly... Nothing to do with the kingdom, nothing to do with what's transcendent, nothing to do with extending his kingdom. You may want to reevaluate. And some of us have been put in a situation, and God has allowed this last year to occur, perhaps, at least in part, that we might have a wilderness experience. Here is God at work in a way that Moses surely didn't, surely didn't recognize at the time, quoting just as we can virtually never understand how our miseries and emergencies, at the time we are experiencing them, might end up leading to a blessing. It's hard. It's hard to see. Can you imagine being Moses? Think of all the privilege he had. Maybe, maybe he did what a lot of us do. He rotated it in his mind. Did I do the right thing? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? Woulda, shoulda, coulda. All that stuff. Off to Midian he goes. He sits down at a well. Now the priest of Midian, 16, had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now, now we're in Midian. Again, another fast forward here. Don't know how long the journey was. Moses sits down by a well. And the first thing we see about Midian is that there's a priest of Midian, and Moses is going to be what? The intercessor. He comes from the priestly line of Israel. And this particular man undoubtedly will begin to pour spiritually into Moses. Another phase of God shaping a leader. There's, this is no accident, brethren. God has shaped Moses through his education, and now he's shaping him through this uh, spiritual encounter. The daughters, uh, their shepherdesses like Rachel was, other women who did take care of the sheep. It would, it would appear that that's what they do. There's apparently no sons. And they're watering their father's flock. 
And this is providential, no doubt. God is moving. Later, we'll find out that the priest is, the priest is called Raul, and his name literally means friend of God, or God is a friend. He'll also be known as Jethro in chapter 3. And so he is a priest, he is a friend of God, or God is his friend. And Moses is a man who eventually it will be said of him that he meets with God like nobody else does. He meets with God face to face. And this idiom in Hebrew doesn't mean that Moses saw God's face. It means that Moses had the closest intimate relationship that you can have as a human. We'll talk more about this as we move on in Exodus. And who does he meet first in Midian? Well, he's going to meet the daughters, but a man whose name means, I know God and he knows me. And I have an intimate relationship with him. This is what God does. Even when we don't see his providential hand, he's putting people into our lives and situations to shape us into the image of Christ until Christ is formed in us. Perhaps Raul will give priestly instruction to Moses. All will be valuable to what's ahead. Then the shepherds came down, came and drove them away, the girls. But Moses stood up. Here's another example of Moses standing up. He stands up to uh, help his brethren from an Egyptian. He stands up to break up a fight among two Hebrews. He stands up now, and I'm, I would imagine he was tired, and he might have been saying something like this, Oh, no, not again. Can anybody get along? <laughs> Shepherds come down, hey, ladies, get out of the way, man. Let us take care of what we're going Shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and he helped. See that word help there? ESV says saved. NIV says he came to the rescue. You know what word that is in Hebrew? It's connected to a Hebrew noun. It's Yeshua. Moses Yeshua'd them. He saved them. He Delivered them. You know whose name that is? That's Jesus. Yeshua is a word used in Hebrew of deliverance, salvation. And Moses, a type of Christ, comes and he saves them from these other false shepherds, if you get the picture here, and he waters their flock. And Jesus Christ gives us living water. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 77, 20. Moses stood up. What is this, the third time he does it? He risked his own well-being, pun intended, because it was by a well. Come on, give me a little love. Yeah, okay. And when they came to Raul, known later as Jethro, their father, 18, Moses has intervened now. He said, why have you come back so soon today? It usually takes longer than this. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. This is probably an ongoing problem. And what is more, he even drew water for us. He's strong and fast, tall, dark, and handsome. And he even watered the flock. Wow. Now they identify Moses as an Egyptian. Why? Because he'd been raised. That's all he knew. Moses never knew anything but Egypt. He looked like an Egyptian. He was educated like an Egyptian. He probably had clothing like an Egyptian. He certainly walked like an Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And now this is a dad. He said to his daughters, where is he? <laughs> Where's the guy at? Seven daughters. Come on, help me out, ladies. 
Why is it that you left the man behind? I've been waiting for this moment for years. I've been praying. There's seven of you that have to be married off. Why would you leave him sitting there? Bring him home for dinner. Get the guy something to eat. Give me a break. So they read between the lines. They go back to the well. Moses was willing, content to live with the man. This is a lot, uh, obviously, condensed. And a lot has gone on. But he settles there, and he gets... Uh, Raul gave his daughter Zipporah. Her name means sparrow to Moses. So Moses left Egypt single. He now has a wife. And uh, he's received if you will, by non-Jews, rejected by his Jewish brethren, received by the Gentiles. Some scholars see in this another type of Jesus, right? Rejected by his own people largely, and the gospel eventually gets to the Gentiles. See where it says he gave his daughter Zipporah? This is the origin in weddings. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? When a pastor asks that, this is the ancient origin of it. Because fathers gave their daughters in marriage. They had to have, you had to have dad's permission. And literally there was a contract and a dowry. And you know, there was actually an agreement by family before the dad gave the daughter away. Who gives, who gives this woman? This is the origin. And she gave birth to a son and he named him Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Some see in Garash the root of Gershom, that it can be to drive out or to expel, but it has the main idea of an alien, which Moses is, and it came about, we're almost done, in the course of many days, the king of Egypt died, the one who had put the price on Moses' head, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. The change in leadership didn't change their situation. They cried out or screamed, and their cry for help because of their bondage, rose up to God. Now, the hero of the Exodus takes center stage. God will be mentioned five times and his heart towards his people. So God, 24, heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He never forgets, but this is when the promises will be realized is captured in the word remember. He, he's about to act. There's a great line I read this week that says God remembers his covenant and forgets our sins. So good. And God's about to take action. God remembered the covenant he had made with the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel. There's the idea of compassion. And God took notice of them. He remembered. You know, we, we could sometimes say, why doesn't he act now? Why, why didn't he see years before us doing the mud dance in Egypt? Oh, he saw it. But the deliverer is being prepared and God is about to act. God knew his people and he knew their pain. Father, as we pause here for a, a moment just to let a lot of information settle into our souls, I pray that whatever's been from me that's not valuable to your people, they would quickly forget. But whatever's been from your spirit, I pray that it would go deep into our hearts and do a conforming work, that it would actually do what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, it would perform its work in us who believe. 
conform us. This is a dangerous prayer, but here it is. Conform us into the image of your son. Uh, It's dangerous in this sense that sometimes I'm not sure we're ready for it and all that it might mean. But we watch Moses and he's going through pain and rejection and maybe even question marks about what he should do and how he should do it. And yet at the same time, you're working and we don't always see it, but you know us. You know our pain. You know our struggles. And you care. And you so loved us that you gave your son to your bride. And we are so humbled and grateful. And I pray as we study the Exodus story, we'll see a story of our own salvation, a story of our own sanctification, Lord. And that we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just take a moment? Would you just bow your heart? If you're not sure that you know this great Savior, Jesus, this would be a great time to get to know him, trust him, understand what he did for you, understand his powerful sacrifice, and just repent of your sin and trust in him and him alone for your salvation. Become part of his family. Something this simple yet this profound. Lord Jesus, I believe in who you are, why you came to this planet. I thank you that you died on the cross for me, paid the penalty for my sin. I turn from it and trust in you. I believe in your resurrection from the dead. And I want to learn to walk with you. And I know you have a ministry today interceding and forming me more and more to be like you. Help me, Lord. Maybe you're a prodigal. A very similar prayer would be very appropriate. And for the saints, Lord, here, I just pray that they would bask in the beauty of this last, these last couple of verses. God took notice. God cares. He knows. And he's prepared a, an answer in the gospel that no one will ever take away from us. Father, we love you. I pray you bless each precious person here. Bless the things on their heart. Reach out your hand, Lord, and stabilize those who are feeling a bit of unstable. Those who may need a healing touch, I pray that you'd extend your hand in mercy. You know the needs, you know the hearts, Lord, and I pray that you'd be doing a work in these last moments of this service. We don't just move on to the next thing, but help us to worship you. Continue an attitude of worship as we move into this last uh, expression of uh, song to you. I ask all of this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand?